Greetings, RJ here. Before we get started, the staff and producers at Making Contact would like to thank all of you that donated at the end of last year. And as always, we thank you for listening. And now, here's the show. On today's Making Contact. The key battle that has been raging in urban America since the beginning of the 20th century is not between political parties of Democrats or Republicans, because most cities are dominated by one or another political party, but is the battle between the advocates of what they call the growth machine and those who believe that the key need in cities is for the land and the cities to be used for the benefit of the people. Journalist Juan Gonzalez has spent the past 50 years bearing witness to the struggle for America's cities. From the redlining and racial covenants of the early 20th century to land grabs and privatization in the 21st, he chronicles the evolution of the growth machine and the growing progressive movements to reclaim U.S. cities in his new book, Reclaiming Gotham. Juan Gonzalez spoke in October 2017 at Pegasus Bookstore in Berkeley, California. As I was getting ready to call it quits in daily newspapers, a strange phenomena occurred, political phenomena, which was an election in New York City for mayor of New York in 2013. A young, radical, former anti-war activist, former supporter of the Sandinista Revolution in Nicaragua, the child of parents who were targeted during the McCarthy era for being too left and driven out of any kind of government employment, ran for mayor of New York under the banner that income inequality was a moral issue of our time and that something had to be done about the growing income inequality in America and that as mayor, he would be determined to end what he called the tale of two cities within New York City. This phenomenon of incredible wealth for the few beside incredible poverty for a few million New Yorkers and constant inability of the rest of the population to afford the rents, to afford to have a decent paying job, to have their basic needs met. So no one expected him to win. And somehow there were four other candidates in the Democratic primary who were better financed, better known, and considered more likely to succeed. And Bill de Blasio ran an unbelievable race. He ran away from the field. It wasn't even close. And then in the November election, he got something like 75% of the vote. And it was one of the biggest margins in the history of mayoral politics in New York City. And it wasn't just Blasio that got elected. It was an even more radical African-American woman named Letitia James, who was elected the public advocate. There were more than 20 people supported by the left-oriented Working Families Party who won election to the New York City Council and grabbed an effective majority control for progressives with the New York City Council. So basically all the major positions of government in New York City were suddenly grabbed in 2013 by the most radical coalition in the history of the city. But what I began to discover as I looked a little more closely was that this was happening in other places. On the same day that Bill de Blasio was elected mayor of New York, a young maverick city councilman who'd been fighting the Democratic establishment in Pittsburgh 
for years. Bill Penduto was elected the mayor of Pittsburgh on a very similar platform to that of de Blasio. On the same day that de Blasio was elected mayor in New York, Martin Walsh, a labor union leader, cobbled together a coalition of African-Americans and Latinos and labor unions to become the first labor union leader elected mayor of Boston. On the same day that de Blasio was elected mayor, a young woman who was a leader of a nonprofit organization in Minneapolis who had led the fight to prevent the Minnesota Vikings from getting huge subsidies for a new stadium was elected, uh, Betsy Hodges was elected the mayor of Minneapolis. On the same day that de Blasio was elected mayor in the state of Washington, a progressive state legislator, Ed Murray, was elected the mayor of Seattle, as was Shama Sawant, an openly socialist who was campaigning on the $15 an hour for the workers of Seattle. A few months before all of these elections, the most radical one of them all, Chokwa Lumumba, a former leader of the Republic of New Africa, an avowed black revolutionary, ran for and won the mayoralty of the city of Jackson, the capital of Mississippi in the deepest part of the South. And a few months later, in early 2014, in Newark, New Jersey, Raz Baraka, the son of the famed African-American revolutionary and poet Amiri Baraka, cobbled together a coalition of parents and educators and captured the mayoralty of Newark, the largest city in the state of New Jersey. You know, they say in journalism that one is an incident, two is a coincidence, three is a trend, right? But here I started seeing that in 2013, all of these folks were getting elected to local government posts on very similar platforms. And it, I began to think that something was happening. So I figured, well, I'm getting ready to retire from the Daily News. Let me take a closer look, because there had been some others that had been organizing even before then and had accomplished amazing victories in city council races right here in this area. You had the example of Richmond, California, where the Richmond Progressive Alliance had begun fighting in the early parts of the decade and first got a few city councilmen in and then got Gail McLaughlin elected. She's here tonight. Gail McLaughlin elected the mayor of Richmond, California, and she served two terms as the mayor of Richmond, California, and the Richmond Progressive Alliance still has a majority control of the Richmond City Council. So I began to realize that there had been an urban resistance movement growing in our cities for years, but that the movement matured, came of age in 2013 with the victories of de Blasio and Walsh and Baraka and Lumumba and all these others, and that no one had been even paying attention to how this movement came together, what it represented, where it was going. It's more than just about New York City. It's really about what's been happening to urban America. How did our cities get to where they are today? And so I explore the history of race and class policy in America since the early 1900s and attempt to try to make some sense out of why are our cities, which have such diversity, have such vibrancy, are the motor force of the American economy, why they continue to be so riven by class and racial divisions. And that it had been quite a bit of literature by scholars, but very little bit had reached the popular imagination. I was especially impressed by a book that was written almost 30 years ago by sociologists Harvey Malich and John Logan, Urban Fortunes, The Political Economy of Place, where they insisted that the 
key battle that has been raging in urban America since the beginning of the 20th century is not between political parties of Democrats or Republicans, because most cities are dominated by one or another political party, but is the battle between the advocates of what they call the growth machine and those who believe that the key need in cities is for the land and the cities to be used for the benefit of the people. And the growth machine advocates, who are usually the bankers, the real estate people, the elite of the city, always want to maximize the profit of the land. Because in a city, land is a most valuable commodity. There's only a limited amount of it. And what you do with the land, how you zone it, how you develop subsidies for a particular kind of development or other development, really determine the future of the city. So Malich and uh, Logan have always insisted that the real battle is between advocates of the growth machine and advocates of the use of land for the benefit of the people. And that the political parties can be on either side. Usually both parties are on the side of the growth machine. And the residents are left to try to fend for themselves. So I, I looked at the development of the growth machine through three essential phases. One was the early 20s, 30s, 40s, when it was openly white supremacist, when as African-Americans, Latinos came up from the South, and I say from the South because African-Americans came up from the South of the United States, Latinos came up from Mexico and Puerto Rico, and we all met in the major cities of the North. And there was a systemic attempt to keep the racial minorities corralled within the inner city and to prevent them from being able to get into other neighborhoods. And there was a complete support by the federal government in all of its policies. Well, we're all familiar with what redlining was, this, this racial supremacist theory that African-Americans and Latinos lowered property values, so you had to keep as few of them out of your neighborhood as possible if you wanted the value of your house to go up instead of going down. And so the government actually subsidized the entire development of not only the American suburbs, but the outer rims of most cities through these supremacist policies of not insuring loans to blacks and Latinos. And also the use of zoning rules, the use of racial covenants. Up until 1950, 80% of all the private housing in Chicago had deed covenants that the house could not be sold to an African American. In most of New York City and the outer suburbs, as the suburbs were being built, Levittown, the largest residential development ever built in the United States, had 70,000 people in 1950, not a single African American, because there was a deed covenant in every house that the house could not be sold to an African American. So the combination of racial covenants, the redlining of the federal government, and the zoning decisions of leaders assured racially segregated cities. However, the Latino and black populations kept growing. So after World War II, this conservative growth machine policy was supplanted by a new one, which was called urban renewal. After the Housing Act of 1949 mandated slum clearance, Democrats and Republicans participated in the raising of most of the inner cities of Atlanta, of Hartford, of Philadelphia, of Chicago, to supposedly clear the slums and build low-cost housing. They cleared the slums but never built the low-cost housing. So the African-Americans and Latinos were either confined to segregated public housing or pushed into outlying neighborhoods that then created huge conflicts between the white communities who then viciously fought back against integration of their neighborhoods. There were bombings and riots, hundreds of them in Detroit, Philadelphia, Chicago, Miami, all these cities throughout the 1950s. 
And I believe in retrospect, many of the rebellions, riots of the 1960s were direct response of the black and Latino communities, this systematic exclusion of their ability to progress. So we come to the third phase of the growth machine, which began in the 1970s and which is what the new crop of resistance leaders are fighting against. And I should add that this resistance is not just in the United States. It's a phenomena of all the advanced industrial countries where right-wing governments are now in control of the national governments and most of the regional governments and where the only way that progressives can move forward and encourage progressive social change is by capturing the levers of local government. So, for instance, you have Sadiq Khan, the first Muslim mayor of London. You have Anne Hidalgo, a leading socialist and environmentalist who is now the mayor of Paris. You have Ada Colo, who led a movement of Spanish homeowners, thousands of people who were being foreclosed and evicted from their homes as a result of the mortgage crisis. She led a mass movement and then was elected the mayor of Barcelona. You had a young woman who nobody had heard about the mayor of San Juan, Puerto Rico, Carmen Julín Cruz, who in 2012, who, who in 2012 led a grassroots movement against her own party and the opposition party was elected mayor of San Juan and just got re-elected mayor in 2016, the same day that Donald Trump was elected president and who Trump now calls this nasty lady who has dared to claim that he hasn't done a great job for this small island that's in the middle of a big ocean. Uh, a lot of water, a lot of water. <laughs> so Carmen Julian Cruz is part of this new progressive movement. So all of these people are fighting, what are they fighting against? Well, they're fighting against neoliberalism in urban America, the new stage of the growth machine. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Making Contact. Today, we're hearing from journalist Juan Gonzalez about how progressive alliances are reclaiming U.S. cities. Neoliberalism, this new stage of the growth machine, it's reshaped the world. It's an ideology that demands that governments reorganize society based on the idea that everything is about competition and market forces. That's meant scrapping regulations that protect workers and the environment cuts to social services, healthcare, and education, and the insistence that people should pay private companies, either individually or through tax dollars, to meet their basic needs. In U.S. cities, neoliberalism often comes in the form of, quote, urban renewal projects. Again, here's Juan Gonzalez. By the 1970s, neoliberalism supplanted the old conservative strategies. No longer could government simply bulldoze entire communities with what civil rights leaders dubbed Negro or Hispanic removal. It became clear as well that our cities, which remained the nexus of the American economy, had to be rebuilt and that upper and middle class whites must be lured back to inhabit them, with the poor relocated to faraway suburban rings as had already occurred in Europe's cities after World War II. Congress spelled out that goal in the 1974 Community Redevelopment Act when it called for, quote, the spatial deconcentration of housing opportunities for persons of lower income and the revitalization of deteriorating or deteriorated neighborhoods. Admittedly, there is still considerable debate among urban scholars on the meaning of neoliberalism or whether it is even appropriate in describing local city politics. 
Here I use the term not as a theoretical abstraction, but to outline a specific political uh, economic project by which capital seeks greater profit through privatizing government services, appropriating major portions of the public commons, and curtailing democratic accountability by public officials to the mass of voters, all in the name of more efficient government. The third story of this book chronicles the origin and the evolution of the new urban resistance movement, of which New York City and the de Blasio coalition are only the most visible example, because they're the biggest, but not necessarily because they're the, the most important, but they are the biggest. Decades of steady displacement of low-income residents from our major cities, along with the constant push to privatize the public commons, eventually gave rise to a sustained public revolt against the neoliberal version of the growth machine. That revolt has been quietly gathering steam for some time. It began more than 15 years ago in a few scattered cities and towns, places such as Richmond, California, Seattle, Washington, and Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. In most cases, a local advocacy group formed around a particular issue, challenged the anti-neighborhood policies of the city's established leaders, then backed one of its own for election to a municipal post, and somehow pulled off a surprise victory. At first, each victory appeared to be an isolated occurrence, a rare and unexpected achievement for progressives. Many thought it due to the particular circumstances of that town, or to the qualities of the individual upstart challenger, or to the weaknesses of the candidate he or she vanquished. It is only human nature, after all, to fix our gaze on what is immediately in front of us. But in doing so, we often fail to grasp the powerful forces operating in the background, or as the old saying goes, we miss the forest for the trees. In the case of this new movement, it would take several years for even its key participants to realize they were part of something bigger. Now, I've been involved as an activist or as a journalist for 50 years in covering social movements. So I know how social movements develop. Social movements do not hold a convention and officially declare themselves. Social movements start in one place with a group of people who say we're not going to take the existing conditions any longer. And then they begin to organize. Most of the time they lose. Every once in a while they have a victory. And then when they have a victory and they grab some of the levers of power so they can change policies, they start looking around. They said, oh, wait a second. 200 miles away in this other town or this other neighborhood, somebody was doing the same thing that we were doing. We didn't even know about it. And over here in some other place, people are doing the same thing too. Why don't we start getting together? So then the activists begin to exchange information and best practices, and, and gradually the movement grows. And it's a long time before anyone is noticing that the movement is already on the move. And one of the best examples I give of the power of this movement is a young man named Wes Bellamy, who I had not met when I finished the final draft of this book, but I met him recently in July at one of these local progress conferences. Wes Bellamy is a young African-American who was the first African-American elected to the city council of Charlottesville, Virginia. A couple of years ago, he's in like in his 30s, young guy, school teacher by profession, the only African-American on the city council of Charlottesville. As Soon as he got on the city council, 
he started pressing the council to remove the statue of Robert E. Lee from downtown Charlottesville. He didn't have the votes, but he kept demanding that this happen, and there was a significant black community that was behind him. So the city council really was reluctant to fight with him on it. He knew he didn't have the votes, so Wes Bellamy tells his fellow council members, okay, you won't give me Robert E. Lee, give me a reparations package for the black community. He said, I want an equity fund dedicated to scholarships and job training programs specifically dedicated to righting the wrongs of injustice of the past. When I heard that, I said, wait a second, everyone's talking about reparations at the national level. What about at the local level? Why aren't there city councils all over this nation where there are large, significant black populations that could easily pass reparations packages for their local communities and start a trend? Build it from the bottom up rather than from the top down. So, so I said, this is an idea that has legs. But then what Bellamy said was even more interesting. He said that after they passed, I think it was an $8 million equity fund for a Charlottesville, a couple of the council members had changes of heart and they decided that they would agree to take down the statue of Robert E. Lee. So he suddenly had a one-vote majority on the council to take down the statue of Robert E. Lee. Now, when I heard him talk in July, he was talking to all these other people of local progress explaining what had happened. He said, but we have a problem. The KKK is after me now. They are calling for a huge march in a few weeks in Charlottesville to protest the move to take down the statue of Robert E. Lee. This was one person. One young city councilman, he did not have a majority, but he knew he had the support of his community and he was determined that he was on the side of right and he was going to continue to press. And he not only got the statue, an agreement to remove the statue, although it's still being battled in the courts, but he also got an equity package, a reparations package for the black community in the process as a byproduct of his original goal. So what I'm saying is that things can be done at the local level. As dark as the times seem right now, if our cities are the great hope for progressive change in America and in the industrial world. And because more and more people keep moving to the cities, so the future of cities is really the future of our civilization. And the people who directly control cities, the issues of police accountability, sustainable development, sanctuary cities, all of these things can be dealt with at the local level in confrontation with the national and the regional governments, which is inevitable. But there is hope of social change that is occurring in the United States. These new mayors and council members elected through the work of progressive alliances. They're part of a broader trend in U.S. history. There have been repeatedly throughout American history the development of progressive movements in different parts of the country. Perhaps the most extensive and influential one was the progressive movement in the 19-teens and early 20s when you had an, an unwieldy alliance of various political factions, including Republicans, progressives, best represented obviously by Teddy Roosevelt and the Bull Moose Party who were anti-monopolies, a movement. You had farm labor Democrats who were furious about the role of the railroads in controlling the movement of agriculture around the country and monopolizing freight prices. You had socialists. At one point, there were more than 1,200 socialists elected to city councils and mayoralties in the United States, including 79 cities like Milwaukee and Buffalo, and you had communists. And they were all part of this 
unwieldy progressive alliance. Now, that movement accomplished quite a bit. People don't realize how much it managed to accomplish. It, for instance, was able to get the first direct elections of U.S. senators, because U.S. senators were not directly elected before that period. They were able to sponsor and develop the first municipally owned utilities in many cities in the West and the Midwest. They were able to get some of the early uh, laws passed at the federal level for food safety and uh, early environmental laws. And they got for the most part, the development of nonpartisan elections largely west of the Mississippi. Uh, so you didn't have the kind of party control that exists east of the Mississippi in many of the many cities in the country. So they were able to accomplish substantial reforms. However, as the movement inevitably fractured and a good portion of it became the troops of the FDR's New Deal, others got co-opted into the existing parties, it lost its strength. But it accomplished certain things. Juan Gonzalez is hopeful about the prospects for change under the leadership of this new wave of mayors and council members. But in his book, Reclaiming Gotham, he concedes that in some cases, their policies have fallen far short of their campaign promises, and that they too are susceptible to corruption around campaign contributions, city contracts, and political favors. In the case of New York City, once de Blasio took office, his rezoning plan continued the rapid displacement of working-class New Yorkers. He expanded the city's police force despite low crime rates, increased targeting of black and brown youth, and a massive corruption scandal. I hear the argument all the time, well, all these politicians are going to betray you eventually. They're going to be co-opted by the Democratic Party. That's possible. Nothing in life is guaranteed. But the reality is that I believe that this new crop of elected officials understands their connection to a mass base. The mass base has to continue to hold them accountable. And also, the mass base has to understand that no one is free in this world, not even the politicians that get elected espousing their programs. Because I hear people say, well, Martin Walsh is not as progressive as it sounds. Bill Peduto is not as progressive as he sounds. Bill de Blasio is not as progressive as he sounds. Well, they're not as progressive as their followers expected them to be. But they're far more progressive than the people that were in office before them. And they are still subject to pressure from the base. As a longtime activist, I learned it's easy to criticize. It's hard to govern. Once you're in a position of power in a capitalist society where there are all of these other forces determined to bring you down, these politicians sometimes make decisions that their own base does not agree with. But that's no excuse for us saying, well, they're all betraying the movement. No, you push them as much as you can, and hopefully they will create more space for the movement to grow. So I think that's the attitude that has to be taken. Otherwise, the movement begins to fracture because everyone wants the movement to be pure ideologically and in terms of its original goals. And reality is a lot more complex than any of us originally think it is. And so I think that's the attitude that we have to take toward this new movement. This new movement may be more complex than we realize, but maybe it isn't. If we learn anything from this country's long history of progressive political coalitions, shouldn't it be what caused these coalitions to unravel? What if somewhere along the way, 
Electing public officials stopped being a means to a more just end, and an end in and of itself. What if these coalitions fractured because some groups became more invested in maintaining their hard-won positions than in fundamentally changing the balance of power between the political elite and the people who make cities what they are? Juan Gonzalez delves into some of these challenges further in his book, Reclaiming Gotham. That's it for this edition of Making Contact. You can learn more about the many ways in which people are fighting neoliberalism and building more just cities at our website, radioproject.org. You can also check out past shows, subscribe to our weekly podcast, and make a difference by supporting our work. If today's show raised questions for you, share the show with a friend. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter, where our handle is making underscore contact. Special thanks to Pegasus Books for allowing us to broadcast excerpts of Juan Gonzalez's discussion of his book, Reclaiming Gotham, recorded in October 2017. Our producers are Anita Johnson, Marie Cha, Monica Lopez, and RJ Lozada. Lisa Rudman is our executive director. Our web editor and audience engagement director is Sabine Blazant. Vera Tykulsker is our development associate. I'm Marie Cha. Thanks for listening to Making Contact.